재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 Time for International News Digest Getting some analysis on some of the major news stories Making headlines around the world Our first panelist joining us from uh, University of Edinburgh Business School Professor Nick Oliver Hello Hello Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. We're going to uh, get your thoughts on this uh, recent scandal in the aftermath of the Volkswagen emissions testing scandal. Another major uh, car maker, Mitsubishi Motors, uh, has recently admitted that employees improperly manipulated fuel economy data. Um, In your view, uh, as far as what Mitsubishi has done, is it pretty egregious? Um, It's certainly significant. Um, It's probably not as severe as the Volkswagen emissions um, scandal. Uh, What Mitsubishi seem to have done is is two things. First of all, some Mitsubishi employees intentionally manipulated some fuel economy data where what they should have done is given average fuel economy across a series of tests. What they appear to have done is given the very best figures, which is therefore misleading. Uh, And secondly, Mitsubishi seem to have used what is described as an unapproved testing method for certain uh, parameters, particularly rolling resistance and aerodynamic drag. So what that probably means is that they overinflated the tyres of the vehicles and probably did things like tape over the door uh, openings in order to reduce aerodynamic drag and rolling resistance, thereby giving a more favourable picture of their fuel economy than was really the case. Uh, Mitsubishi as a company, in terms of uh, its goodwill, have they generally enjoyed a fairly decent reputation? Well, unfortunately not. I mean, they've been involved in a number of scandals in the in the past, the most severe of which was in the early 2000s, where, they, where it was demonstrated that they suppressed certain information about safety-related defects. Essentially, what they were doing were um, preparing remedial work on the cars privately when what they should have done was issue a general recall. So their reputation... Um, for integrity was already tarnished before this latest incident. So, unfortunately, this incident is going to further harm their reputation. Now, here in South Korea, Professor, a lot of people uh, bemoan the lack of safety standards and some scandals that have occurred, and they always say, look, the Japanese government, they seem to be sort of up to the task. They have very strict protocols. But do you feel that the Mitsubishi Motors... uh, these allegations right now expose the limit of uh, the Japanese government's verification system? Well, I mean, first of all, the thing to stress is there's no safety-related issue uh, with the current incident. It's purely around fuel economy. And to be honest, I don't think we know enough yet about the so-called unapproved testing methods to know if that demonstrates a weakness of the of the Japanese government's verification system. My suspicion is that it's not a problem with the verification system. Um, I mean, here in Europe, there's been a lot of criticism about regulators turning a blind eye to car makers doing exactly what Mitsubishi seems to have done, which is stretching the limits Mm. and maybe in some cases exceeding the limits of what's acceptable under test conditions in order to put the performance of their vehicles in in a better light. 
So I don't think there's any evidence that this is specifically a problem with the, um, the, the, the Japanese government and its testing regime. It's very easy for, for lay people who are not uh, as, I suppose, uh, well aware of how these various automakers go about do their business and lump them all in the same category. Mitsubishi, they're doing the exact same thing of, uh, as what we've witnessed with Volkswagen. But uh, you're saying that's not necessarily the case. Can you just point out exactly how the, the Mitsubishi motor scandal is different from the, uh, the Volkswagen scandal? Well, what Volkswagen did was um, quite deliberately, although there's a debate about how widely this was known and understood in the company, but, but certainly some groups within Volkswagen quite deliberately installed software into the engine management system that was able to detect whether or not the vehicle was operating under test conditions or whether or not it was operating on the, on the road. And essentially what it did, it switched the engine mode of operation from one that was very advantageous in terms of emissions, and that was the mode that was uh, activated when the vehicle was under emission testing conditions. Uh, and then when it detected that it was under normal driving conditions on the road, it switched the engine into another mode, which dramatically increased the emissions but gave better fuel economy and engine performance. So effectively, it was a, if you like, it was a technological lie. Mm. The, the system was telling one story to the testers, but another story to the, to the drivers on the road. Now, there's no suggestion that Mitsubishi Motors were, were doing that. Yes, they were trying to put their fuel economy in a better light than the facts merited, but this, there was no uh, implication of a technological okay. fix that was intentionally there to, to deceive. As far as Mitsubishi is concerned, and uh, we just had an interview earlier how Japan has developed uh, their uh, fifth-generation stealth fighter, uh, which was manufactured by Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. So this is a huge company with a lot of various uh, and diverse uh, products and services. How do you think this latest uh, scandal would impact uh, Mitsubishi's future? Well, it's certainly not going to, to, to help. I mean, focusing just on Mitsubishi Motors, mm -hmm. uh, Mitsubishi Motors is one of the world's smaller and weaker automakers. Um, already we've seen around 15, 1.5% knocked off the value of its stock. Its profits have actually been quite good for the last couple of years, but they're likely to be significantly reduced by this uh, latest uh, incident. I mean, the incident is also significant because the, the auto industry globally is so competitive, everyone is, is under pressure. Uh, Mitsubishi has a history of association with foreign car makers, associations that have not generally worked out, with Chrysler in the 1980s and 90s, mm. with Daimler Chrysler in the late 90s and, and the early 2000s. Um, now they're part of the, of the Mitsubishi group, as, as you said. But they're quite a fragile company within the Mitsubishi group. And the Mitsubishi Group itself, for various reasons unconnected to car making, is under a lot of pressure at the moment. So the really interesting and important question is how long will the Mitsubishi Group continue to support Mitsubishi Motors? That's a, that's mm. a big, big question. The overall Japanese auto industry, and it's uh, been quite an evolution, uh, I guess, decades ago. They were known for making these uh, cheaper automobiles. Uh, gradually, they gained a reputation of, of quality and value, uh, even beating out most of their American competitors in the U.S. 
market. Now, um, is there a cumulative effect? Uh, we remember with uh, Toyota, the number one automaker, and uh, the big uh, scandal that they suffered with safety issues. Is there a sense that perhaps there's a global erosion of trust in the Japanese auto industry? I don't think so in the Japanese auto industry specifically. Um, I, I think there is a, a lot of skepticism worldwide about the integrity of, of automakers of, of all nationalities. Mm. Um, I mean, don't forget that Hyundai Kia had to pay quite significant penalties for overstating fuel economy right. measures right. in the U.S. In, back in, in, in 2014. So I think what the Mitsubishi Motors... Um, latest Mitsubishi Motors <coughs> episode, excuse me, will, will do is just going to add to these worldwide doubts about can we, can we trust the automakers. I don't think it will specifically damage the Japanese auto industry more than any other, mm. but it will just add to the doubts on the part of consumers about can we trust what the automakers tell us. So it's not a national issue. It's really more of an industry-wide issue, I, I guess. It's an indus- in my view, it's an industry-wide issue, not uh, a Japanese national issue. Very good. All right, uh, Professor, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us, as always. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Professor Nick Oliver from Edinburgh Business School. Uh, let's uh, turn to our next expert. Very pleased to have joining us from the Open University uh, Planetary Geosciences Professor David Rothery. Hello. Hello. Professor, thank you for joining us. Uh, we've had a series of recent earthquakes. Uh, everyone, of course, saddened by the tragedy in Ecuador as well as in Japan in the recent weeks. And, of course, uh, the fears continue to rise that there is some kind of connection, uh, that uh, perhaps we should be bracing ourselves for a major uh, event like the one that occurred in Nepal, uh, which killed nearly 8,000 people uh, in your view, and I know there are, of course, the scientific uh, th- uh, consensus on this is different, but the public perception, of course, uh, remains. Um, d- do you do you feel that there is something interesting, or in terms of a trend in re- relation to the the chronology of the Japan and Ecuador earthquakes? Uh, no, I, I don't think there is a trend. Um, they were a couple of days apart. They were both magnitude 7 now every year there are about 20 magnitude 7 earthquakes somewhere in the world if they happen to be deep or remote they don't do any damage we had two close together in time which were fairly shallow and near inhabited areas so they both did damage but it's it's just a fluke Uh, there's nothing special about those earthquakes and um there have just been the normal aftershocks ever since. Activity in both areas is dying away. And really, we can't think of any way why an earthquake in Japan would trigger an earthquake in Ecuador, right. which is more than 10,000 kilometers away. Yeah, and, and the vast majority of uh, scientific opinion, obviously, uh, is what you just stated here. But there seems to be this persistence, and it's part of the reason why I suppose uh, we're talking about it right now, where the public perception and the opinion from non-scientists appear to be that these have to be related. Um, It can't just be coincidence. How difficult is it to, I suppose, convince the public and even, I guess, members of the media that uh, there really isn't as much here as a matter of fact uh, besides the fact that these were in or near population centers? 
Well, you're right, it is a difficult issue, and there are people who like to believe all kinds of crazy ideas, and I don't have a solution to this other than people like me and responsible media outlets like yourselves taking time to discuss it. But uh, I say again that we can't think of a way why, how these would be connected. They're a long way apart. We understand what causes individual earthquakes, and we do not think the stresses can be transmitted across vast distances. So we just have to repeat the same story and uh, hope people yeah. believe, us. believe us. We're paid to understand these things, <laughs> and we think we do. Uh, so much talk about the Pacific Ring of Fire. Um, can, you, can you sort of debunk that theory as well? for us, please? Well, well, the, the Ring of Fire is a, is a sensible concept. Um, what's happening in the Pacific Ocean is the ocean is widening. There are places in the ocean, the East Pacific rise, where new ocean crust is being formed and spreading away. And when the ocean crust reaches the continents all around the edge of the Pacific Ocean, the oceanic plates are being pushed down below the continents. That's a process called subduction. And the Ecuador earthquake was pretty straightforward plate called the Nazca plate was being pushed below South America. The plate motion isn't smooth, it sticks until a couple of metres worth of displacement is being built up and suddenly it lets rip and goes all at once and that causes an earthquake. It's a mirror image of that in Japan, it's the Philippine plate being pushed below mm. southern Japan and that wasn't a direct subduction zone earthquake, it was a Japanese plate itself breaking a little bit, with sideways movement along faults in Japan and therefore quite shallow. But it's all to do with the plates being pushed down below the continents. And as, as the plates do go down, they begin to melt or cause melting in the, the Earth's mantle above the descending plate, and that feeds volcanoes, hence the term ring of fire. There are volcanoes all up through the Indonesia, the Philippines, Japan, Kamchatka, Alaska, and the west coast of the Americas. That's the ring of fire. But the earthquakes and volcanoes are both symptoms of plate tectonics, the plate movements. An earthquake won't cause molten rock to form or anything like that. The two separate phenomena all associated with this subduction, the going down of plates all around the edge of the Pacific Basin. Right. Uh, I personally, I've lived in uh, California for the majority of my life. So uh, for people like ourselves, it doesn't necessarily have this sort of outsized effect, perhaps, that uh, other people who read about in the headlines and are horrified. But there's, I guess, an, again, among the public, this perception that these kind of events, these seismic events are occurring more frequently, uh, particularly in the, uh, in, in the population areas. Is that also not necessarily true? I don't think it's true. They're better reported. I mean, now we have social media. Right. Uh, people will see on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, but there's you know, not somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody that I know has felt an earthquake in, in, in this country. And so news does spread, uh, but there is no basis for suggesting that either volcanic eruptions or earthquakes are on the rise. They fluctuate a little bit. It's not the, exactly the same number every year. Uh, but as I say, on average, about 20 magnitude 7 earthquakes somewhere in the world. And sometimes they're shallow and near populated areas. The Nepal earthquake that you mentioned at the start wasn't that big, mm -hmm. but it was, it was very shallow and near a mountainous area, so lots of landslides when it happened. It's the same uh, issue with the, the Haiti earthquake a few years back as well, right? And, and the fact that the infrastructure wasn't really built to withstand that sort of a, 
a seismic event. Ah, well, now you mention infrastructure. The Haiti earthquake uh, that destroyed Port-au-Prince was not a very big earthquake, but it was shallow. It was on... It was affecting an area that was not on very solid rock. It was on loose, unconsolidated ground. So that shakes more than proper bedrock. Mm. And the infrastructure, the houses were very poorly constructed, as was the case of many of the structures in Nepal. A similar earthquake in Japan or New Zealand would do a lot less damage because those are richer countries and they have seismic building codes to build structures that will withstand an earthquake and they are quite well enforced it's the poorer countries where the building codes are regularly flouted where more damage is done and more people are killed because they're in an unsafe building experts like yourselves who 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 deal with these issues are probably weary of um answering the question of why are we not able to predict these events um, more accurately or more further in advance and and that could perhaps save lives. Could you address that point? Uh, Yes, sure. Well, we've mapped out the world's plate tectonics. We know the the, the belts of the globe which are most prone to earthquakes. Um, But the plate movement isn't smooth. the stress builds up until it gives way somewhere and you can't spot where something is about to give way until it happens. Um, Just imagine an experiment. Take one brick, put it on top of another and just tilt them. You know at some point the top brick is going to slide off the bottom brick. But just by looking at it, you can't tell when it's suddenly going to start sliding. It's a bit like that inside the earth working out where where a fault is, is going to begin to move. Sometimes, before a big earthquake happens, there are a few small earthquakes before the big one happens. It sort of happened in Japan a couple of weeks ago. There were smaller earthquakes before the larger one um, by a few hours. But normally, it's the big earthquake that happens first, and the smaller earthquakes come afterwards. That's what's called aftershocks. Uh, The best we can do is give some warning when an earthquake has happened, because the way the, the ground shaking that does the damage... Is, is, is waves that travel along the ground surface. Um, you can spot the earthquake by waves that travel within the earth and they go faster. The internal pressure waves travel at seven kilometers a second. So if the earthquake is sufficiently far away, you can get 20, 30 seconds warning of an earthquake from seeing the pressure waves before the surface waves arrive. And that's enough time to set all the traffic lights to red, turn off the power so the electric trains stop and so on. But that isn't enough time to evacuate people from buildings. What people should do is stay inside, get under a table and wait till the ground stops shaking. Don't run outside because you're at risk of debris falling from above. So we can give a little bit of warning sometimes, but we can't predict. I can't tell you an earthquake is going to happen in Tokyo tomorrow. Uh, There's no way we can tell that. And even if you could, it's not like you can evacuate that uh, city within a 12- or 24-hour span of time. Uh, True. Evacuating cities takes days. But there are plans in some countries, including Japan, for evacuations that might be necessary for volcanic eruptions. Mm -hmm. But you'd hope to get a week's warning or more because volcanoes usually build up more gradually and you can tell that something might be about to happen. Earthquakes tend to strike more out of the blue. 
Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but uh, Professor, uh, thank you very much for uh, shedding light on this issue and helping us understand uh, some of these uh, concerns a little bit better. Thank you.